Okay, I guess we're gonna wrap things up. It's been a long day, but uh, you're in for a treat to hear Richard Fisher uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, uh, our closing speaker. Uh, he spoke here actually in November 2009 at the Cato Institute Monetary Conference, uh, where he made a strong case against the too big to fail doctrine. And uh, he's a person that believes in market discipline and thinks creditors, not taxpayers, uh, should bear the risk of failure. Uh, he just gave uh, a widely quoted speech at the Harvard Club in New York City, where he said sensibly, uh, quote, there is a limit to what monetary policy alone can achieve, close quote. Uh, that should be evident from three rounds of quantitative easing and ultra-low interest rates, uh, but still stubbornly high unemployment and low real growth. Uh, printing money, of course, is not a panacea. It doesn't generate economic growth. Uh, Mr. Fisher was, has an interesting uh, history, uh, life history. He was born in L.A., grew up in Mexico. His father was Australian, his mother South African. Uh, he attended the Naval Academy, Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. Uh, and he also ran twice for the U.S. Senate. Uh, I don't know whether he has that in his future or not, but uh, he became president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas uh, on April 4, 2005, uh, succeeding uh, our friend uh, Bob McTeer, who spoke at Cato many times. Uh, prior to becoming the bank's president, he was vice chairman of Kissinger McLarty Associates and senior advisor of FCM investors in Dallas, uh, which he founded actually in uh, 1987. From 1997 to 2001, Mr. Fisher was deputy U.S. trade representative and a senior member of the team that negotiated the U.S., China, and U.S., Taiwan bilateral agreements for accession to the World Trade Organization. He's an honorary fellow of Hartford College uh, at Oxford University and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In October 2006, he received the Service to Democracy Award uh, and Dwight D. Eisenhower Medal for Public Service from the American Assembly. Uh, in 2009, he was inducted into the Dallas Business Hall of Fame. Uh, not quite the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but uh, impressive nevertheless. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Mr. Fisher with us today. Thank you. By the way, I want to explain, before I get started, my midlife crisis, which was running for the United States Senate. My wife was the daughter of a congressman. She said, you're going to go through midlife crisis. You have two choices. You can uh, run for the United States Senate, or you can run off with another blonde in a red car. And I assure you that the latter will cost you a hell of a lot more than the former. <laughs> so I, I did the former, the worst experience of my life, by the way, but that's another story. I know you've had a long day. I appreciate so much, Joe, the introduction. Uh, by my count so far, you've had 21 speakers and panelists addressing Europe's crisis, lessons for the United States, uh, being the Cato Institute devoted as you are to advocating for free, open, and civil societies based on the principles of limited government and free markets, individual liberty, and peace. My guess is the conference has done a pretty good job of highlighting how the financial burden of the American welfare apparatus, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, other entitlements that burden our nation's balance sheet uh, must be resolved if we are to avoid arriving at the same destination as Europe. Uh, 
it would take a very strong person to spend an entire day listening to tales of cautionary woe about Europe's pathology, particularly so near geographically to our dysfunctional capital, and resist the urge to run home and slit your wrists. Uh, I'm going to try to end today's conference on a more pleasant plane, acknowledging our problems here, yet pointing to some factors that give me, as an American citizen, hope. I'm going to spend very little time talking about monetary policy. And after I'm done with my comments, I'll be very happy to avoid answering any questions you have on that front. It's a sad day when the Financial Times opens its Monday edition, as it did this week, with the first sentence of its lead article declaring, quote, the U.S. is the brightest spot in the world economy, end of quote. And then goes on to qualify that comment by pointing out that we shine only within a global economy, as they described it, that is on the ropes. This was followed by a Wall Street Journal report from Tokyo yesterday under the banner headline, Global Recession Risk Rises. That article said, and I quote, the IMF upgraded growth prospects for only one major nation compared with its July forecast. It projected that the United States would grow at 2.2%, which is 0.1%, that is 0.001 higher than previously estimated. One is tempted to conclude, as I've remarked on many occasions, that we are but the best looking horse in the glue factory of hapless economies. Now, I have a preferred equine analogy for the American economy, and it looks like this. It's of the Triple Crown winner, Secretariat, chestnut thoroughbred with a very strong muscular physique, leading the pack by a record-breaking 31 lengths at Belmont Stakes for a victory that would shock the world. I'm convinced that with proper care and feeding, American businesses can pace the United States economy to win the equivalent of the triple crown of the global economy. And I believe we have laboratories within our own borders, such as Texas, that provide us with examples of how Congress might help business do so and help our nation avoid the European trap. If we can liberate the private sector from the shackles of uncertainty about fiscal policy and overregulation, and take the best from states that have succeeded in attracting job-creating businesses, I'm convinced that like Secretariat at Belmont, the United States can win the longest race by an astonishing margin. And in doing so, we can show the way for others. So questions, how might this be done? What's holding us back? I think it helps to retrace a little bit of history. On this 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's important to remember that we won. We won the Cold War. We spent a generation of blood and treasure to move from the constant threat of mutually assured destruction to mutually assured competition. As we did in the aftermath of many of our nation's great struggles, World War I, World War II, we emerged from a titanic struggle with the Soviet Union as a victor and as the world's leader. And we liberated not only Eastern Europe when the Berlin Wall came down, but also incentivize the forces of economic reform in China and Vietnam and India and elsewhere. Here's the point. We got exactly what we fought for, a world economy expanded by billions of new consumers and producers of goods and services rather than weapons of war. What followed the fall of the Soviet threat was an opening up of the world economy, aided by trade liberalization championed by two presidents, 
a Republican named George H.W. Bush and a Democrat, Bill Clinton, who together shaped and delivered the Uruguay Round, NAFTA, the World Trade Organization, and myriad other arrangements to allow for the freer flow of goods of communications and capital. This is worth remembering. Under both Republican and Democratic leadership, we actually did what was economically sensible. The result was a long-lived expansion, but it ended, as you know, in tears. Success laid, led to complacency, complacency led to tolerance, and even the encouragement of excess. We spent more than we could afford, and our government, Republicans and Democrats alike, continued at an accelerated pace down the path of promising more in social programs and other spending programs than we could sustain. And on the regulatory front, we turned a collective blind eye to economic malpractice, resulting in the spectacular failure of Enron and culminating with the collapse of the megabanks, for which even a cursory glance at their balance sheets would have revealed, in the words of one of my colleagues, that nothing on the right was right and nothing on the left was left. What started out as a widely heralded period of so-called great moderation and seemingly endless growth metastasized into a cancer of excess and speculation, resulting in a crash from which we are now only slowly and very, very slowly recovering. The wreckage that I've just described and its aftermath have been widely discussed and have been analyzed in countless fora and publications. This afternoon, I want to just quickly highlight some of the key outcomes that I believe are often overlooked. First among them is that American businesses have emerged from the crisis revamped and hyper-efficient. When producers of goods and services cannot price what goes out the door as richly as the cost of what comes in the door, as was beginning to happen in the summer of 2008, or when demand for one's product collapses, as happened post-Lehman, where firms can't grow their top line, they batten down their hatches. They look to preserve their margins by cutting costs and ramping up productivity. Over the past four plus years, US businesses have cut operating costs to the bone. They've taken advantage of cheap and abundant capital made possible by the Federal Reserve to rejigger their balance sheets, exploiting the lower cost of debt and the Fed-driven bull market for stocks. American businesses, large and small, public and private, have done this with an alacrity that has dismantled the momentary notion, the momentary conceit that the European business model was superior or that the Chinese adaptation of economic management was somehow better suited for a globalized economy. The private sector in the United States has adjusted to the new world faster than you can say Japan is number one. American business is now more fit than ever before. Second, despite a lot of fire breathing and beating in the breast, our government has for the most part preserved the open trade environment fashioned under our 41st and 42nd presidents. Protectionism has been held at bay. Our businesses have the entire world now to source from and sell into. They also have the option to invest in job creating ventures in more places than ever. An option that necessitates that our government reboot tax policy if it wishes for American businesses to invest in job creation at home. Third, we now have more than enough fuel in reserve to finance a prolonged period of job creation and economic expansion. The Fed has $1.4 trillion in excess private bank reserves on deposit 
to 12 Federal Reserve banks, such as mine. There are additional cash resources lying fallow in non-depository financial enterprises, and there's an additional $2 trillion or so of cash, or cash-equivalent assets, sitting on the sidelines in the coffers of businesses, above and beyond their operating needs and present plans for capital expenditure, or CapEx. The cost of money is nil. Interest rates for creditworthy businesses are the lowest in the history of the republic. Hawks like me worry that our central bank has done far more than was required. And people like me are concerned about the difficulties we will encounter when we need to tighten monetary policy and exit from what I call uber-easy monetary policy. But this much I do know. Presently, American businesses, big and small, public and private, have money burning a hole in their pockets. They have the financial wherewithal to expand and to hire. So here we are. American businesses are muscular and fit, rich and ready to roll. Now, what do we need to induce them to hire and put the American people back to work in order to restore economic growth and prosperity? Well, obviously, we need demand to sell into. One does not need to read the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, to know that the global economy has slowed and that exports will not drive U.S. final demand, at least for the foreseeable future. At home, our government is drowning in debt and is hyper-leveraged. The cost of its debt burden is being mitigated by accommodative monetary policy, but our federal government has reached its limit as a direct source of aggregate demand or of investment impetus. Even if we wanted to, which I doubt this audience does not, we cannot look to government to propel the economy forward. This leaves domestic consumption and investment by the private sector as the best and only hope for us to remain, quote, the brightest spot in the world economy, end of quote. But as any student of elementary economics knows, you can't grow consumption unless you grow income. You can't grow income unless you put the American people back to work. And you can't put the people back to work unless businesses, private businesses, invest and expand their payrolls. But here's the rub. You cannot expect private businesses to expand payrolls or job-creating capex unless they decide to use the abundant cash and cheap credit that they have ready access to. They will not invest if they are totally uncertain about the return they might earn on that investment. Now, the first thing an aspiring MBA student, or in fact any entrepreneur learns, is that business is the art of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. Businesses can manage around a reasonable amount of uncertainty, but under conditions of total uncertainty, they cannot make the kind of strategic decisions that result in significant expansion. American businesses today face the uncertainty of the European miasma much discussed here during this conference. And they are increasingly uncertain about the once sure thing of China as a source of seemingly endless future demand. The slowing globalized economy, the world economy on the ropes, as described by the FT, is without a doubt a great source of uncertainty and a retardant to job creation and expansion. But I would argue that nimble business operators in the United States can manage to that risk. What they cannot manage is the mordant fiscal predicament hanging over their heads. A feckless American government, specifically a Congress that hasn't created a budget in over three years, is poised to drive us off the so-called fiscal cliff. It's contrived a tax code and a regulatory structure that would baffle a financial Houdini. has compounded the uncertainty facing businesses to a stifling degree. At present, no business, big or small, 
public or private, knows what its tax rates will be going forward. No business knows the social overhead needed to cover their employees. No business knows the degree to which federal spending programs will be changed or truncated and how that will impact it or its customer base. Without some certainty about your cost factors or reasonable understanding of the prospects for demand for your products, you go into a defensive crouch. You can't budget. You can't plan. You can't run the risk of hiring and expanding beyond your replacement needs. Uncertainty of the kind I have just described cripples job creation, capital investment, and the ability of businesses to realize their potential. Here's a direct quote from the October survey of 691 small and medium-sized businesses by the National Federation of Independent Business, the NFIB, released just yesterday. Quote, uncertainty appears to dominate the outlook. Spending and hiring are on hold. Owners are in a maintenance mode. Record numbers of consumers feel that the government is doing a poor job, as cited by the University of Michigan survey. And record numbers of small business owners report the political climate as a reason not to expand. And then the text goes on to say, only 8% of those surveyed complain they can't get all the credit they want. 2% say credit is their top business problem. 21% each cite taxes, regulations, and red tape, and poor sales. With, job, with regard to job creating capital expenditures, two recent studies are worth contemplating. The first is a study of CFOs conducted last month before the last meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee by Duke University's Fugua School. Of the 887 CFOs surveyed, only 14.5% listed credit markets or interest rates as among the top three concerns facing their corporations, with 84% saying they would not change their investment plans if interest rates dropped by 2%. By contrast, 43% listed consumer demand among their top three concerns, while 41% cited federal government policies. The second was a study conducted earlier in the year by professors uh, Michael Porter and Jan Rifkin, surveying nearly 10,000 Harvard Business School alumni, with a special focus on 1,700 respondents who were personally involved in decisions about whether to place business activities and jobs in the United States or elsewhere. So I'm going to show you a pie chart from the study, which summarized the most commonly mentioned implements, impediments rather, to investing and creating jobs in the United States. Now, if you look at this chart, note the slices with the asterisks. They signify that uncertainty is a theme within the categories of taxes, macroeconomics, regulations, and healthcare. And here's a direct quote from that report. Quote, we asked an open-ended question. What are the greatest impediments to investing and creating jobs in the United States? In the realm of taxes, respondents were deterred from investing in the U.S. not simply by high statutory corporate tax rate but also by the sheer complexity and uncertain future of the tax code. Similarly, it goes on to say, with respect to regulations, respondents identified uncertainty as a barrier nearly as often as they pointed to the regulatory burden, and they highlighted the bureaucratic complexity commonly associated with compliance and permitting." End of quote. I didn't see any direct reference in the text of Porter and Rifkin's study to monetary policy as an inhibitor of investment plans. If 42% of the NFIB's businesses and 41% surveyed by Duke University cite federal government policies and red tape as the biggest inhibitor to job creating expansion, if Porter and Rifkin's work makes clear that uncertainty and complexity about taxes and regulation are deterrents to investing in the United States, 
If small and medium and large businesses feel that they have sufficient financial access or wherewithal to conduct their affairs, I don't think it takes a genius to conclude what needs fixing if we're to treat the problem of unemployment and anemic economic growth in this country. The fix does not lie within the purview of the Federal Reserve. The fix lies solely in the hands of a government that has the power to shape taxes and spending programs to incent businesses to go out and hire, rather than to ball up into a defensive crouch, or worse, go elsewhere in the world that we work so hard to liberate to create jobs for others rather than for our own people. The private sector and American business community are poised to expand, but it will not do so as long as we have a government that cannot resist the temptation to devise a politically convenient patchwork instead of laying out a convincing, reliable, long-term program that job creators and consumers can count on and plan and budget around. Now, this is a point that I believe is widely neglected. Short-term fixes to our fiscal and regulatory pathology will not solve the problem of unemployment and economic sluggishness. The great inhibitors of job creation are uncertainty over taxes and spending and regulation that plague businesses. Even if businesses do not like the rules that govern their behavior, knowing the rules with certainty gives them something to plan around and, and navigate about. Presently, they haven't the foggiest idea what the rules will be. There are many macroeconomists and many politicians who look at the fiscal cliff and worry that inaction will plunge us, in, plunge us into recession by both raising taxes and dramatically cutting spending, suggests that a one-year or other short-term fix will stave off recession. Now, this is true from a macroeconomic standpoint. I have no quarrel with this logic. But it will come at a cost. Short-term fixes only push out the envelope of uncertainty. If it fixes for nine months or for one year, then businesses will wait for nine months or one year before they make major commitments to hire or invest. We might heave a collective sigh of relief that we did not drive off the cliff, but to job creators, to businesses, this is just one more reason to stall until long-term dependable resolutions are crafted. A far better outcome would be for our fiscal authorities to provide a convincing long-term solution to our fiscal woes. Until then, I believe our economy will perform well below capacity. We may outpace our hapless friends in Europe or elsewhere. We may remain the best-looking horse in the glue factory, but we will not realize our thoroughbred potential. Now, luckily, we have some examples of success in the American Economic Laboratory. I live within one, Texas. I want to show you a chart of 22 years of behavior in terms of job creation in Texas versus the other large states and the United States as a whole. Take a look at this chart and think about it. Texas works with the same monetary policy as the other 49 states. We pay, the, we pay the same interest rates on mortgages, the same rates on commercial and industrial loans and consumer loans. We work under the same federal regulatory regime governing banks and financial institutions and operate within the same stock market as the rest of the country. To be sure, we do have some natural advantages. We produce more oil than Norway and more natural gas than Canada. But here's a dirty little secret. Like the United States, we're a diversified economy. Uh, I'm going to show you a chart of where 2011 jobs came from. You get the point? Texas is a, a very diversified, pretty much along the lines of the rest of the United States. The oil and gas and mining sector accounts for only 2.3% 
of our employment. The sector created 37,000 jobs in 2011, but professional and business services and trade, transportation, and utilities, and education and health service sectors created more. Working under the very same monetary policy and federal fiscal policy as the rest of the country, Texas has created over 50% more jobs than it had in 1990. Whereas if you go back to that previous chart, you'll see that New York has expanded its non-farm employment total by a paltry 6%. Illinois by 8%. California by 14%. It is true that we in Texas lag the other states shown on the charts that I've just shown you in social service. We are the antithesis of the welfare state. And yet we are an indisputable leader of job creation in the country, outpacing the United States by a two and a half to one factor over two decades. We draw massive inflows of business investment and we attract significant numbers of immigrants from within the United States as well as from abroad. Look at these charts on the immigrant flow of Texas. You can see the red is domestic, that means people coming from other states, and the blue is international. So we're not just being populated in Texas by Mexicans streaming across the border, or by Chinese or others coming to reside in a prosperous state. And now I want you to compare these charts of flows for California and New York and Illinois. The red is domestic, all out migration from New York, all out migration from Illinois all out migration from California. So yes, we in Texas have a low propensity for providing social services, but we excel at creating the most important driver of human dignity and pride, jobs. If you believe people vote with their feet, the balance that we have struck in our state between job creation and social services seems appropriate enough to attract the diaspora of the other megastates. So we must be doing something right in Texas. The 22-year time span of the spaghetti graph that I showed you earlier covers legislatures that under both Democratic and Republican leadership and Democratic and Republican governors have created a pro-business, pro-growth environment. And I would suggest that if you want to see an economy that's avoided the trap of an overburdened social structure like that, which we've discussed today, and if you want to consider a fiscal and regulatory regime that attracts rather than chases away business and job creation, you might look to Texas. And then you might compare it to California, which has the opposite approach and is paying a price for it. Now, a friend of mine who's a businessman in Los Angeles about to move his business to my state encapsulated the difference between California and Texas in a short little story that I think people here at Cato might find amusing goes like this. The governor of California is jogging with his dog along a nature trail. A coyote jumps out. He attacks the governor's dog and then he bites the governor. The governor starts to intervene but reflects upon the movie Bambi. And then he realizes he should stop because the coyote is only doing what it does naturally. So instead he calls animal control. Animal control captures the coyote and bills the state $200 for testing it for diseases and $500 for relocating it. He then calls a veterinarian. The vet collects the dog and bills the state $200 for testing it for diseases. The governor then goes to the hospital and he spends $3,500 getting checked for diseases from the coyote and getting his bite wound bandaged. 
course, being California, the running trail gets shut down for six months while the Fish and Game Department conducts a $100,000 survey to make sure the area is now free of dangerous animals. The governor then spends $50,000 in state funds implementing a coyote awareness program. The legislature then spends $2 million to study how to better treat rabies and, in fact, how to permanently eradicate the disease from the world at large. Of course, the government security agent is fired for not stopping the attack, and the state spends $150,000 to train a new protective agent for the governor with special training regarding the nature of coyotes. And then, of course, PETA protests the coyotes' relocation and files a $5 million suit against the state. The governor of Texas is jogging with his dog along a nature trail. A coyote jumps out, tries to attack him and his dog. The governor shoots the coyote with a state-issued pistol and just keeps on jogging. <laughs> the governor spent 50 cents on a 38 caliber hollow point cartridge, and buzzards ate the dead coyote. And that, my friends, is why California is broke and Texas is rich. <laughs> now, we don't have to follow the path of California or that of Europe. And by the way, Texas has no monopoly on good government. It is but an example, however imperfect, of what I believe Cato holds dear in its vision for an operating economy. And if the United States Congress would look to it and other states that have found the secret to unleashing the best of the animal spirits of the marketplace, there is no question in my mind that America can outshine the rest of the world and lead it back to economic growth and expanding prosperity. To unlock that brighter future, Congress must set aside its partisan pickering and short-term political myopia and get down to crafting a tax, spending, and regulatory regime that not only reigns in deficit spending and runaway unfunded liability, but also focuses on incentivizing America's businesses to create jobs. And if they do, I believe, as a red-blooded American, that we will end up, like Secretary at Belmont, winning the race for prosperity by 31 lengths or more. Thank you. Happy to answer any questions if you want me to, or if you want me to sit down, I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah, we're happy to take any questions. Mr. Fisher has agreed to take a couple questions, so if you just raise your hand, identify yourself, and uh, ask a question rather than make a speech. Uh, as long as it ends in a question mark. Yeah. Hi, my name is Matthew Milk here. I'm a fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to focus on European issues. Given that you focus a lot on uh, federalism, the laboratories of the states, uh, or competitive federalism regarding the United States is one of the positives that we have over Europe. Do you think that federalism or competitive federalism in Europe is the answer and better labor mobility, since that's kind of the one of the biggest holdups regarding the optimum currency area? We have a longer history of operating in a federated manner. What is being experimented with Europe is an evolving experimented experiment. Um, I'm old enough to go all the way back to having been tutored by people like Jack McCloy and Helmut Schmidt and others who had visions, Helmut Kohl, President Mitterrand. So I think we're definitely at different stages of development. There's a long history. Lafayette, as you may know, ran for the presidency of Europe. He was imprisoned by the French. He was exiled by his own people. So uh, we have different historical backgrounds. Um, and we come from different cultures. Uh, I've 
been a student of Europe for a long time. I believe I've been to Germany every year since I was 26 years old, but one. And I'm now 63. And I've known every German chancellor, including the current one. Uh, I understand the romance of Europe. I think it's very hard to replicate the romance of the United States. My overall feeling is that a single currency uh, clearly was a methodology to unify Europe. But it was important to have, as John Taylor and others who uh, I look to for advice and guidance would argue was a rule-based regime. And we have somehow violated those rules that we've gone through time. Originally, it was the weaker countries that were allowed to bypass the rules. And for a while, I want to remind you, it was the Germans and the French who bypassed the rules. So you know, it's hit and miss, very difficult thing to implement. Uh, we paid a very heavy price to become as federalized as we are. We fought a civil war. We had enormous disruption. We've slowly gotten it right. Uh, now, this will be a statement that I'm sure will offend a lot of people. But I, I think there's something in the American DNA that makes us exceptional. I really believe that. And uh, part of it is the way we reward risk and also the way at least we used to reward risk and the fact that we allow failure to take place. Uh, most of the European societies I know, if, if you fail and fall down, it's very hard to get back up. Where I come from, failure is a badge of honor. Uh, not just in my state, but in my country. So I'm dancing around your question in part because I think it's er too early to tell. I think it's a very difficult thing to do. It's been tried for a long time in different formats. But again, we come from very different perspectives. We have different cultures. It's very hard to accomplish. And we're watching a grand experiment take place now with an action-forcing event of having a single currency. And we'll just have to see whether or not people can adjust accordingly. Or, uh, or not. In the back, gentlemen, in the back there. Uh, Pierre Lemieux, University of Quebec. I have a very important question about your Coyote story. May I ask it? It's uh, a question you can ask anything you wish. Uh, by the way, I uh, recently moved to the United States uh, for the very purpose of being able to shoot coyotes with my own pistol. Uh, so my question is, why in your story doesn't the governor shoot the coyote with his own private pistol instead of a state-issued pistol? Uh, by the way, I believe the governor does have his own private pistols. <laughs> yes, sir, in the back, the gentleman in the back, white shirt. It's an allegory, my friend. <laughs> uh, um, uh, um, you, you mentioned you held up uh, Texas as an example for what to do for the federal government, and I'm, uh, I'm quite uh, sure that the governor of Texas doesn't have war-making powers. Do, uh, do you think we should take away from the President of the United States and the Congress the war-making powers, and then the economy would improve? I, I believe that certain abilities are enshrined in the basic documents of our country, including uh, the ability to declare war, which is in the hands of the Congress. And uh, I don't think we should take away those powers. We need to defend our country. 
I'm not a fiscal expert. I'm not an elected representative of the people. But I do believe that these are obvious requirements of a central government to defend our shores. Incidentally, uh, we were a nation in Texas. We did have an army and we had a navy. And in fact, I'm an admiral of the Texas Navy in case we ever succeed from the union. <laughs> Made so by a Democratic governor, uh, Governor Mark White. So I doubt that's ever going to happen. One of the reasons I'm not crazy about it happening is because I'm not sure what we would name our currency. Our friend from Canadian, the Canadian up here, we already have the loony. Um, so I don't know what we would call the Texas currency. That, that's your opinion. And I'm not going to step into that argument. That's not my purview as a monetary official. Yes, sir. David Cohan. Uh, Thank you for talking about the simple, common sense things Texas has been doing right. Uh, if you were elected our next president and you had a compliant Congress, what would be the key elements in the economic program that you would recommend? I asked the other day if I were king, what would I do? And I said, abdicate. <laughs> um, I don't want to get into specifics, but I think if you listen to me carefully, the, the key to this is incenting job creators to create jobs. Our, our biggest problem is we are drowning in unemployment. U6 is unbudged and is extremely high, regardless of what happens at short-term movement and what we officially announce in headlines is unemployment. Too many Americans are out of work. As I said in my speech, work is the route to dignity and pride. So whatever they come up with, as president working with, after all, it is the Congress that is responsible. It is the Congress that controls the purse springs of our country. It is the Congress that decides how much of our money to spend, to collect, and then to spend, and where it goes. I think it's very important that they think, Democrats and Republicans, about the best way to incent jobs, given the realities that we're confronted with. Government is not going to be creating jobs. The private sector creates jobs. It creates lasting jobs, and it's the most innovative of all. We know that. Whether you believe in collective unions or you believe in uh, none of the above, all of us are in favor of more job creation. And my simple point is that you can't look to monetary policy to achieve that goal. So I would like to see both Democrats and Republicans working with the guidance and assistance of the chief executive of the country, get their act together and think about this and implement it and provide a convincing answer that people can plan around. One key point, which I referred to in my speech. We opened up the world. Not only can we source product and services from elsewhere, which we wanted, not only can we sell products to billions or more people, which we fought for and wanted, but we have the obligation, if we are publicly traded, or even to satisfy our creditors to earn the best return we can. And therefore, we have the obligation to drive our costs to the lowest possible point and ramp up our productivity if we are men and women operating businesses. The point is we have an option to go elsewhere. And that's why I refer to rebooting fiscal policy. I believe our fiscal policy is engineered and designed for America as an island. It no longer works. If I'm running a company, I am obligated under the law and under my shareholder principles 
to find the best way to earn a return on capital. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not a bad person. I'm doing what I'm obligated to do. Congress needs to take full awareness of this and rejigger, as I said earlier, our tax and spending patterns in a way that incents businesses, not by cutting us off. We know that protection is, is a road to perdition. Not by cutting us off, but by incenting our people to invest more here. If the political descendants of Lee Kuan Yew give you their word that you will not, or you will have X tax regime for 15 or 20 years, pretty much considered in the business community as good as gold. And I know gold's a favorite thing with them is hallowed halls. We don't have that in this country. How do you plan with that kind of uncertainty? So I think the major thing is to come up with a program that is convincing, be supported by the executive. But again, whether you have a Democrat or, or a Republican in the White House, it comes down to the Congress. Those are the people that have to set the rules. And they're going to have to do so convincingly. And they're getting to a point where they're becoming incredible. And they need to step up to the plate and do it soon. The worst thing we could do is to depend on the central bank to continue down the path we're on. Because we know where that ends. Weimar, Argentina, et cetera. Next question? Yes, sir. One more? What time is it? I took off my watch. 25 seconds. Uh, Dave Kemme, University of Memphis. I uh, understand and agree with everything you said, especially with respect to. Uh, that's the best question I've got. <laughs> well, that's the best question uh, is yet to come, I think. I'm not as optimistic as you are with respect to the ability of Congress and the executive to get to re get uh, their act together and, and come up with this type of plan. So from the Fed's perspective and the dual mandate perspective, what is plan B? We're already on a trajectory, and we've been very clear as to, particularly with the last Open Market Committee, I was against that announcement, as you know. In fact, I was against QE2, and I was against Operation Twist. One, one thing we do is set an example of civility, however, for the rest of Washington. We have strong opinions. We express them at the table. Everybody's listened to. And then, and I've been on the losing end quite a bit. But I never feel that I wasn't listened to, and I'm treated in a civil manner. Uh, there are very few institutions that still work that way in Washington. But I think pretty clearly we have, uh, the committee as a whole has made it clear that it will continue down this path until it sees an improvement in the employment situation. Now, um, I sense in your question, and I hear often uh, some concern that as the central, only central bank in the world has a dual mandate, that if we start getting involved in the issue of employment, that may cross the line to fiscal policy. Just so you know, personally, I'm in favor of a single mandate for the central bank. I, I, I don't think a dual mandate uh, is appropriate for the biggest central bank of the biggest and most powerful country in the world. We should be focused on price stability. Having said that, right now we have reasonable price stability. Even by the Dallas Fed standards, and like everything else we do in Texas, we look at things differently. We have a trim mean analysis on 178 items we've been tracking since 1977, constantly updating them on the personal consumption expenditure basket, things that people actually really use. And our 12-month run rate is running just slightly below 2%. That, to us, is the best 
predictor of what's likely to happen with headline PCE and the CPI over time. So I don't think inflation is an issue right now. Uh, I do worry personally, and I can only speak for myself, that if we continue down this path of trying to satisfy the second part of our mandate, we could uh, set the basis for inflation later on, particularly if we're not able to manage the exit from the excessive accommodation or the uber liquidity that we have thus far provided. So that's sort of, uh, of my approach here. I don't know if I answered your question or not. We cannot, look, I mentioned this in New York. Uh, I have a classmate who's a senator. His name is Chuck Schumer. Hasn't changed since he was 18 years old. Uh, but when the chairman testified the last time for the Senate, Senator Schumer of New York said, you're the only game in town. I thought my chairman showed remarkable restraint. My answer would have been, and again, I'm less diplomatic and I'm a Texan, would be, no, Senator, you're the only game in town. It is my belief that if we continue doing what we do, in, in essence, I, to help me sleep at night, what I do is I consider what we're doing sort of a bridge loan to sanity. Uh, but if we continue to be the only game in town, again, we know where that leads. It's never worked in the history of central banking. And it is up to the fiscal authorities to sober up and get their act together. In New York, I said that I was very tempted, having gone to the Naval Academy, to compare our fiscal authorities to drunken sailors. But as a patriot, I felt it was an insult to drunken sailors. I got to go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike Tanner would like to say a few closing remarks now. Mike, we're, there you are. Thank you. I know I'm the only thing standing between you and food, so I will be very brief. But I just want to once again thank all the Cato sponsors who make this happen, all of you who contribute to the Cato Institute. You make all this possible. In particular, I want to thank the Lindy and Harry Bradley Foundation, who uh, contributed directly to this conference and helped make it possible. And a couple of people who helped put this on in particular, Ronald and Teodoro, who uh, from our conference department and all of the Cato conference department, I mean, you saw how smoothly everything ran today. Uh, it was really amazing. It's some of the best work that I've ever seen any conference people do. And I really have to thank Ronald, who has been at the forefront of all of this. And my assistant, Charlie Hughes, who uh, helped uh, put all the panels together. All the speakers have done nothing but rave about him. And I have to say that he had made my life 100% easier uh, in all that he has done. And finally, I want to thank all of you for coming here today and hanging out through some very long and some sometimes gloomy talk. And uh, thank you for being here. And now, go have some food on the Cato Institute. Thank you very much.